The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hi there. This week on Out of Office, I speak with Paula Kerger, the longest-serving president and CEO of PBS, about her journey from a schoolgirl who wanted to be a vet to one of the most powerful executives in the media industry. It's been a tough year for Paula, and it's not just because of the pandemic. In March, she received an open letter from filmmakers. They said PBS was not diverse enough. I asked her how she felt when she read it. It's a it's a great question. Actually, no one's ever asked me that. When I read the letter at first, um, I thought, "Wow, um, for an organization like PBS to get a letter like this, for me to get a letter like this is is jarring." Uh, but if you can set aside, and I think this is is one thing that is tremendously important for leadership. You know, you have to listen really well. You have to pay attention to what people say. And oftentimes, some of the most important information that's communicated is what people aren't saying. People had these thoughts that had not really come forward, that had not been shared. And, uh, you know, this is something that as an organization, we have to pay attention to. But I think for me personally, really being able to focus on uh, even listening even harder for those important messages that are both conveyed as well as those that are left unspoken. PBS has since announced new initiatives to make it a more inclusive network. Paula insists PBS serves everyone, something a rancher in Nebraska reminded her about. And he walked over to me and he gave me a fixed gaze and he said, I, um, I just want to tell you, I came to this I came to this event because this is important to me and there's something that I want you to know. And he said, I am raising my children on the farm where I was raised. And I always worry that my children are not going to have the same advantages as other kids because we live in a rural area. But we have you and you are our connection to a world of information and ideas that I know are going to be important to our children. And I wanted to come today to tell you, don't mess this up. That, Paula says, is what drives her. We talk about her motivation, her childhood, her grandfather's influence on her, the future of work, her passion for the outdoors, and her latest hobby, beekeeping. There's all that and much more with the president and CEO of PBS on this episode of Out of Office. Paula, welcome to Out of Office. Oh, thank you, Malika. It's a pleasure being with you. Paula, you are the longest serving CEO and president of PBS. 15 years now, is that right? 15 years, yes. Wow, that's a long time. But you've obviously seen the company grow and evolve. Over the last 15 years, what do you think has been the most significant way PBS has changed? Probably similar to every other media organization as we participate in just a rapidly changing environment. Most businesses have gone through a pretty profound change in the last decade, last decade and a half, but media in particular 
Uh, when I started at PBS, we were principally a broadcast organization. I remember my very first speech. I talked about the fact that Apple was beginning to sell episodes of Desperate Housewives for $1.99 as part of iTunes. And I thought, how strange, you know, uh, Netflix was still sending you discs in the mail in those red envelopes. And uh, obviously everything has changed. In fact, I think part of the reason that I have stayed at PBS for so long, besides the fact that I am deeply committed to the mission, is because the work has become more and more interesting. The core, what we do in producing and distributing content that we hope is entertaining, but when we hit our mark, it's also educational and inspirational, that stays. And that really is what has motivated me uh, to stay engaged with PBS. But the way that we connect to people, and particularly in this last year during the pandemic, when it feels like everything was tested and people's uh, media consumption shifted somewhat, uh, it has just opened up lots of new possibilities. It's uh, it's not for the faint of heart <laughs> sure. running an organization like this, but it, it I think ultimately it has been extraordinary in trying to figure out how to move an organization that had identified itself in one very specific way to being much more expansive in the way that it distributes its uh, its information and content. Sure. And our 2020 was a very important year for PBS, not just because of, of the world turning upside down, because 2020 is when you marked 50 years of PBS. And of course, I'm sure you never imagined it would turn out to be the year that it was. And instead of having a chance to look back at the greatest moments in the history of public television, you found yourself dealing with the pandemic. How did 2020 change? PBS. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because, of course, we had this idea how we would celebrate our 50th anniversary. And it's exactly as you described, looking at Julia Child, who was actually the very first that was the very first program that we broadcast as a as a network uh, to um, really reflecting on how our organization had evolved over the 50 years. But what the 50th anniversary actually represented was an opportunity for us to dig deep, to take everything that we had uh, learned as, an, as, a, as a system over the past 50 years and figure out how to apply it in this very strange time. And that meant everything from looking at the content that we produced and delivered, everything from the news to kids programs and so forth. Uh, we had a, a number of years ago created an educational service called Learning Media, which is a broadband service that delivers content into classrooms. And suddenly lots of children were home and parents and teachers were scrambling to figure out how to really ramp up distance learning. And we were there uh, and we actually did a combination of really ramping up our broadband service, as well as going back to good old fashioned broadcast television, because there are a lot of children in homes without access to broadband, reliable access to broadband. And so uh, many of our stations use part of their broadcast error to broadcast courses for kids that were home. So it was it was an extraordinary time. And then in the in the middle uh, was the murder of George Floyd, which I think caused everyone to pause and think very carefully about our organizations and assumptions that we make for an organization like PBS has been very proud of being a, a, a media organization that has tried to bring forward all life experiences 
we all have blind spots. We all have areas where we can do better. And so to both pivot and try to put forward content, both new content as well as great content from our library to help everyone understand the circumstance that we're in. How did we get to this place? Obviously, understanding history is a, is a way to figure out how to forge a path forward, but also for our organization internally and, and speaking as a leader, really looking within the organization and, and trying to understand, are there aspects of the work that we're doing and assumptions that we've made because we're PBS that in fact should be challenged and, and are there ways that we can improve both the work that we deliver as well as the relationships that we have with our employees, with the filmmakers and with the wider world. So it's, uh, <laughs> I, and when I think about it, what a great way to mark 50 years, because instead of just reflecting back, we very much were looking forward. And so deep service taking everything that we've learned, but also I think for organizations right now, many of whom just want to put this last year in the rearview mirror, I think all of us should be thinking about what did we learn this year? What are those ideas that we tried that we never would have done before, that we did because we had to, that we had to be more entrepreneurial, that somehow we have license to try different ideas. They may sound crazy, but um, you know because we were in the circumstance, we felt that we had to, and that gave us the opportunity to experiment in ways that I hope we try to hold on to that spirit as we look forward. Clearly, the workplace is going to look different moving forward. Sure. But I think that that idea that we shouldn't assume that we should just look at circumstances afresh, that's what this year gave us. So in the midst of all this horrible, horrible work that we were navigating through, there actually was a gift. And I think being able to understand that and look at how to take advantage of it moving forward is going to be really important for us and I think for leaders in other industries as well. You know, I, I do know that earlier this year, there was an open letter sent to you by a group of documentary filmmakers, and they said that uh, PBS's uh, programming has shown a systemic failure to fulfill a mandate for a diversity of voices. Do you think they had a point? I think there was a point um, when you read a letter like this, and particularly if you're an organization like ours, that, you know, when you look at our programming, you know, 40 percent of the programming we have on the air is created by by BIPOC filmmakers. And so it always has been something that we looked at. But as, as we have spent time really understanding what is it they're really trying to share with us? And part of it is a frustration of how difficult it is to make films and to bring them forward and to have them promoted and, and supported. In that letter, they, you know, they observed that a filmmaker like Ken Burns, who's been on our air for many years, is, is fortunate in that he has an, a name and a reputation. And although he raises really most of his own money, and that's what I immediately reacted to. It's like, well, Ken does his, you know, does most of his own fundraising. We are largely supporting more of the other independent filmmakers but but I understand it is it is it is harder not just to make your first film you know people always assume that breakthrough moment is the one that is the hardest it's often more difficult to do your second or third or fourth film and so uh what we have been looking at this past year is where are those sticking points for filmmakers how can we do an even better job of bringing their work forward promoting it making sure that it finds an audience and ensuring that there is a support system for filmmakers that need mentoring and other work 
uh, to enable them to do their next film and their next film and their next film. So I, you know, as painful as a letter like that is to receive, it, I think, really gave us an opportunity to take a hard look at, again, assumptions of all of the work that we had in place. And, and some, you know, to be absolutely candid, uh, we offered uh, funding and we offered opportunities that I think not all people were even aware of. And so I think part of it is also communication. So changing the way that we do some of our work, creating more funding opportunities for filmmakers and doing a better job of communicating wider that PBS is a place for everyone. So you're taking their feedback and you're acting on it. But you said something a minute ago, which I was going to ask you about. You said as painful as it is to receive a letter like that, it was an open letter to PBS, but in many ways, it was a letter to you, right? So when you read that letter, what was your first reaction? You said it was painful. Tell me a little bit about how that made you feel. And as a leader, what was going through your mind when you read that letter for the first yeah. time? It's a, it's a great question. Actually, no one's ever asked me that. When I read the letter at first, um, I was hurt because I've been very proud of the fact of the work that PBS has done as, you know, again, we've spent a lot of time thinking about the last 50 years as we've marked our anniversary. And as, as you look back at really so much groundbreaking work, I thought, wow, um, for an organization like PBS to get a letter like this, for me to get a letter like this is is jarring. Uh, but if you can set aside, and I think this is, is one thing that is tremendously important for leadership, you know, you have to listen really well. You have to pay attention to what people say. And oftentimes some of the most important information is communicated is what people aren't saying. And I thought, wow, um, people had these thoughts that had not really come forward, that had not been shared. And, uh, you know, this is something that as an organization we have to pay attention to. But I think for me personally, really being able to focus on uh, even listening even harder for those important messages that are both conveyed as well as those that are left unspoken. And that for me, I think, was the was the most jarring moment of reading a letter like that is, uh, OK, I think I understand better uh, where there are impediments that I had not seen before, let's figure out how to move forward together. Paula, this was obviously a tough moment for you, but I'm sure in your long career, you've had other challenging moments as well. I mean, any, any CEO would. What's your usual mantra or your technique, your coping mechanism to deal with setbacks? Yeah. And, you know, we all have them. And I think the, the, important, the important thing about going through any difficult period is that you have to keep moving. You have to keep moving forward. And I watch uh, leaders and particularly newer leaders that just become frozen when they're in a circumstance where either something has not worked out well or, you know, the and certainly this last year, I think we've all been tested in ways that we never could have imagined. But um, I have always tried to lead in a way that I try to understand as much information as I can. Uh, so again, coming back to this to this letter and, and many conversations I've now had with different groups of filmmakers and, and others, other stakeholders, you, you, you gather as much information as you, as you can, but then you have to move. And I think that when you have a setback, it can knock you off your game or you can try to understand, OK, what did I learn out of this? What is it that didn't work that 
you know, because sometimes the the shift is is a minor one, and sometimes it's pretty profound. Certainly, when we have stumbled, when our organization has stumbled, when I've had challenges, you know, if and when appropriate, it's 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 important to acknowledge that. And sometimes it's really important to talk about it publicly because I think that not only for our own organization, but we have 179 licensees, 350 individual stations. And sometimes the work that we've been doing, particularly as we've been trying to navigate this new media landscape, uh, we want to try new ideas. And if they don't work, we want to be able to talk about why it didn't work, because I think those learnings are really important. I think human nature is, oh, something doesn't work. I hope no one finds out. And I think for nonprofit organizations, which we are, you know, we're largely funded off of philanthropic money, a little bit of government money, too. And I think it's harder for philanthropic organizations when you have um, tried something that has not worked because, you know, you're you're investing other people's money and you want to make sure that uh, you are doing the best work that you can. And sometimes you do the best work and it doesn't play out exactly the way that you think. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Well, you have a tough job. <laughs> There's no, no two ways about it. You have a tough job, but you've been at it 15 years. And I want to ask you, what continues to drive you to do what you do? And I've read about this particular incident. You talk about a man who worked on a farm in Nebraska coming up to talk to you. And you said that, you know, is really one of the reasons you keep going. So can you share that story with us? I had just taken uh, the job at PBS and uh, one of the people that was on the search committee, actually the co-chair of the search committee, ran our station in Nebraska. So he asked me to come. So I had literally been in the job just for a few months. And so I went to Nebraska and there was a nice gathering of people that were involved with the station. Many of them were supporters and board members and so forth. And this one man came up to me and he had driven, I don't know, three or five hours, some, some long distance to come to this, just to come to this event. And he walked over to me and he gave me a fixed gaze. And he said, I, um, I just want to tell you, I came to this, I came to this event because this is important to me and there's something that I want you to know. And he said, I am raising my children on the farm where I was raised. And I always worry that my children are not going to have the same advantages as other kids because we live in a rural area, but we have you and you are our connection to a world of information and ideas that I know are going to be important to our children. And I wanted to come today to tell you, don't mess this up. He also talked about how, you know, twine is formed and you, and you put together lots of small strands that weave together 
into a rope that is profoundly strong. And he also wanted me to remember that, that what really makes up public broadcasting are all these small strands of people around the country that weave into this rope that is uh, that has uh, a profound strength to it. But the thing about him and the don't mess up, someone else said that to me, too. Um, uh, Newton Minow was the uh, was the FCC chairman of the FCC during uh, the Kennedy administration. And he is well known for making a speech where he referred it was made to the National Association of Broadcasters, actually 50, 50, I think also 50 years ago, 50 or 60 years ago, I guess, 60 years ago, where he made the comment that um, that unless television found its true purpose, it would become a vast wasteland. And he has stayed involved with public broadcasting for years. He was involved in signing the Public Broadcasting Act and moving that forward. He was also, for many years, has been involved with our station in Chicago, which is where he lives. And he is someone that I just look up to. He is uh, a deeply committed to this idea that media can have a true purpose and it can be part of what knits us together or it can be part of what drives us apart. And uh, he had had heart surgery right around the time that I had started this job. And he sent me a, a note. His secretary reached out to me and said, uh, Mr. Minow would like you to come and visit with him in Chicago. So I flew to Chicago. We sat down at dinner and he did the same thing as the farmer in Nebraska. He looked at me in the eye and he said, I hope you understand what you've taken on and how important it is. And I wanted to sit down and talk to you because you cannot mess this up. And then he talked about his ideas around what public broadcasting should be. And for me, uh, the farmer and Newton Minow really represent uh, so much of what I've thought about every day. It's, you know, it, and particularly on those difficult mornings when I wake up and I just know that it is just going to be a hard day. I just hear both of them in my ear saying, don't mess up, don't mess up. I spent before COVID a good deal of time traveling around the country, visiting our stations and mostly visiting communities and talking to people about what they hope we will do. Not only the work that we have done already and what they think about it, but also what they what they wish for us as a public media service, because I want to make sure that we're reflecting the public. So literally the month before a lockdown, I visited my 50th state. So I've been to all 50 states. And um, that's the other thing I carry in my heart, which is um, stories that people have told me, sometimes profoundly personal stories of the impact that public broadcasting has had on their children, the opportunities they've given, what it has meant for families. And if you can think about those individual faces. When you think about media, it's sort of this mass, but really it's individual experiences, one by one by one by one. And so the rancher, Newton Minow, and the thousands of people who have shared with me extraordinarily touching stories about the role that public broadcasting plays for them, that's what carries you forward. And that's what keeps me inspired, particularly as we think about this changing landscape and ways that we can do even bigger, deeper work, uh, more meaningful work, because we are given these tools that allow us to do that. I love the analogy of the twine. Paula, what's key to all of this, of course, is trust, right? And we're living in an age of information overload, right? There's information coming at us from everywhere. And then there's fake news and there's misinformation. Trust is key. How do you build trust. It is key. And it's interesting. Um, we participate in a, in a survey every year. Uh, and this is a survey that we field 
that uh, evaluates uh, PBS versus other types of organizations, public organizations. And uh, for, I think it's now 17 years running, we've been deemed the most trusted of all these um, entities. And some of them, I, I can make a joke, it's like Congress, you know, obviously is testing very low right now. But trust is profoundly important for us as a media organization, as in a philanthropic organization. And I think part of of how we have earned trust and how we continue to stay focused on not violating that trust is, is frankly the way that is our business model, the way that we're funded. We rely on individuals to give a contribution for something that in essence they would receive free or may perceive that somehow because it comes through cable, they're paying for it in some way. We, we don't get any cable retransmission money. All of our resources really come from either contributed money or, or some money that we, we earn. And the way that you uh, encourage people to, to give is they, they obviously, they need to trust you. They need to trust that you're doing good work. You, they need to trust that you're doing work that is meaningful to them. And my goodness, people trust us with the, the one thing in their life that is the most precious, their children. And so um, I think that the fact is we are actually, you know, PBS isn't a network. We're like, we're almost like a co-op. We were formed by our member stations. They're all local. They're all individually owned and operated and governed. And so they're parts of communities. People know the people that are running the stations. And I think that matters. It's local at a time when a lot of media has consolidated down. We are in people's lives and people have very fond memories of whether it's Sesame Street or Zoom or, you know, watching the news hour every night or watching Nature or Nova. I mean, we're, we're a part of the rhythm of people's lives. And, and that, I think, is, is profoundly important. And it's interesting, as uh, speaking of the word trust, I've been thinking a lot about um, what our workplace is going to look like in the future. And Mm -hmm. one of the most striking articles, you know, it's funny, you read so much information, but every once in a while you read something that really sticks. And there's an article I read recently that it all comes down to a five letter word, trust. And if the people that work in your organization trust how you're making the decisions and on what basis and it, it just goes a long way. And I think that for a lot of people who have been working from home for the last 16 or 17 months and you develop your own rhythm, you know, you buy your own desk chair, which I had to buy when I started working from the corner of my house and you get yourself set up, even under the best of circumstances, it's hard to think about change. And I think what will help us moving forward is making sure that our team understands that we've trusted them. We've trusted them to get the work done over the last 16, 17 months. And we trust that we're going to learn a new way of working moving forward. And I think that's what will help us as we try to figure out what that looks like. It's probably not going to look like what it, what we were before COVID, but it's also not going to look like this period. And so how do you create the kind of collaboration opportunities and so forth that really allows us to work together as a company. So it's trust is, a, is, is profoundly important. And, and in a time when it seems in short supply, it is something that I think as a, as a community, as a country, as a, as a world, we have to figure this out. Well, you've been in media a very long time, but when you were in school, you didn't really anticipate a career in media. You had your heart set on a different career, didn't you? I did. Uh, well, 
when I, I grew up in the country and I, I've always uh, loved animals and I've always, and I love being outside. So, so the natural extension of that is I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian. And then I was, I was pretty realistic and I thought, well, I'll never get into veterinary school. So I'll be a doctor, doctor. That's a good thing. I love science. I failed organic chemistry in college. I tell this story to a lot of kids. Uh, so I'm not surprised you know this story because I think kids always think that everybody around them has it figured out and they don't. And I right. want kids to understand it's a journey. And that for those that really do think they've got it figured out from a very young age, perhaps they're missing out on just being able to step back and sort of reassess. So I, um, I took a lot of humanities courses cause I was interested in them and then got a business degree and came out of school just not clear on what I wanted to do, but um, I was fortunate. I got a job working for UNICEF in the, in the United States, um, U.S. Committee for UNICEF in Washington. And um, I had never really thought about the nonprofit sector as a place to work. I thought you just did it as a volunteer. My, my, my family was very involved in a lot of voluntary activities. I just thought it was something you did. I, I hadn't really thought about it as a possible career path. And so I worked, um, I worked at a, I worked at UNICEF. I worked at another organization called International House. I was always interested in the arts. I was there and I was raising money for both of those organizations, a skill that has come in uh, tremendously handy. And I had an opportunity to, uh, to go to the Metropolitan Opera, uh, raising money for them. I always was interested in the arts, didn't really know a lot about opera, but loved music. And uh, it was an extraordinary experience. Opera brings together theater and and music and and song and 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 it's and it's a, and it is truly a village. You know, when you think about the sets and the costumes and the wigs and and at a place like the Metropolitan yeah. Opera, it was very big. It was a great experience. But and I was there when I got the call about um, our station in New York, and someone mm-hmm. called to ask me if I would be interested in coming there also to raise money. My grandfather had started the public radio station here in Baltimore, where I grew up, which is now a great classical music station. And I, um, I loved public television. I watched a lot of it, particularly when I was a kid growing up in the country, because that was my connection to the world was television and particularly public television. You know, it was it was never a, a, a thought out path. But, you know, it's interesting when I look at the scope of work that we do, I have a lot of interests. I'm interested in history. I'm interested in the arts. I have a deep interest in science and public television is all of that. And so I somehow feel like I I ended up in the in the place that I was supposed to be. Can you tell me a little bit more about your grandfather? He was a scientist. And so he taught his expertise was microwave technology and he taught um Actually, at the time, it was men, largely. I think it was probably all men coming back on the GI Bill uh, microwave technology, which was, in fact, used by radio stations, which is why he was part of of setting up this radio station, because he wanted to create a real world experience. But as much as he was interested in science um, and particularly physics, because that's what he was, he was a physics professor. He was also a great storyteller. And so he's had a huge impact on my life because. He also uh, loved being outside. He gardened all the things that I love doing. I think many of them came from, you know, being at his side when I was a kid. But he was a great storyteller. And, you know, sometimes we'd be out working in the garden together and he would start a story and and he would just, you know, evolve it sort of like Shahrazad. You know, it would keep going and then the next day he would continue it on and so forth. 
And I think that inter- that that and he was involved with the local theater group. He did all the sets, um, set design. And so I just think that that sort of blend again, why this must have been destiny of of interest in storytelling and the technology that conveys it is is, I think, part of what sits in my uh, either in the back of my brain or sometimes I say in my DNA. <laughs> well, how do you decide that a story is worth telling? How do you decide what you're going to put on air? I mean, now you're quite famous for having put Downton Abbey on air, but also, you know, so many other phenomenal programs. What are you looking for when you say, aha, that's something I'm going to air? I want to give pure credit where credit is due. And that is we have a great uh, programming team uh, that actually are always looking for programs. And I work with them really more on the larger strategy than on the individual programs themselves. So occasionally, and actually in the case of Downton Abbey, that is one that I uh, did wade in because the year that we were looking at Downton Abbey, uh, we also were looking, uh, we had made a commitment to bring back Upstairs Downstairs. Jean Marsh had gotten the rights to, you know, sort of bring back the series and we'd already made that commitment. And I remember sitting down with our then head of programming, said that the team at Masterpiece had had this project that the creator of Gosford Park had developed as a television series. And it did feel like a lot of the same because obviously Upstairs, Downstairs is also, um, you know, many of the same themes of, of Downton Abbey, although they're very different shows, obviously. And we, and he said, well, and you know, we're, we're really a little bit back and forth. What do you think? And, and then he also said, and Maggie Smith is, you know, they're looking at Maggie Smith and it's like, oh my goodness, Gosford Park, Maggie Smith, we have to do it. So that's one place where I did wade in. But yeah. um, but largely, you know, look, we we're we're particularly interested in stories that are not well told. And there are so many stories. You know, it's um, this last year, there's been a lot of discussion and actually now multiple projects that have been done on the Tulsa massacre. We actually did um, a documentary through American Experience on the Tulsa Massacre, I think, 20 years ago. And uh, we actually aired that program as well as a new documentary that we had done. And I think that there are just so many stories out there uh, that are untold. There's so many. I have a deep interest, as I know I've said multiple times, around science. And I think that as we've observed this year, Science literacy is a challenge in this country. And yeah. when you look at everything from discussions around climate change to, you know, frankly, the efficacy of the of the covid vaccine, getting people to have a deeper and better understanding of science and the scientific method and so forth is hugely important. And there's a way to do that that is engaging and exciting. And uh, so we're partic- I'm particularly interested in, in, the, in those kinds of stories. And I, you know, I just think every once in a while you just, you find a new talent or you find, you know, a wonderful project that just, you know, you feel like every, every story should have been told, right? <laughs> it just, but yeah. it's not, but it's not true. There are just so many great stories. We just did a biography on Amy Tan, the author. It's a, it's, yeah. it's a magnificent biography, you know, and I just can't understand why it wasn't done before. Her, her life story is, is even more interesting than the books she's written. So I just think that there's just, there's just a richness of, of ideas out there and trying to find those is, is something obviously that we're constantly in pursuit of. So I believe you're back. You said you love the country and you're living on a farm. 
I don't live exactly on a farm, but I live in the Blue Ridge Mountains. So I live, um, and it's, and it's just, I feel very fortunate. I lived in DC. I lived in New York for 25 years. And then I I lived in DC um, for a good, for 10 years, I guess. And about five years ago, I decided to, uh, to actually move out here. So I, I commute back and forth. I'm about 50 miles from DC. Uh, but it feels like a world away. And it's been uh, particularly, uh, you know, because I traveled so much before, I've actually been able yeah. to truly experience it. And I'm very interested in birds. And there's a, because we're on a migratory path, I see a lot of uh, extraordinary birds and just, you know, the fox and the deer and the, even the possums and the skunks. And uh, you're a real nature lover, right? I am. And then this past year, a friend of mine has uh, is a beekeeper, and so I have always been interested in bees. And so uh, uh, I worked with her, and we set up three hives that are here. And it has been fascinating to just watch this whole process. She got involved because her son was very, very concerned about the state of the honeybee, and so uh, and so I've. I've become a, a bit of a amateur beekeeper. She's really the beekeeper. I'm more of a helper. And my last question is, this podcast is called Out of Office. What's your absolute favorite thing to do when you're out of the office? My absolute favorite thing to do out of the office, again, because I love being outside, is being outside with my dogs and just, you know, experiencing the full outdoors and just uh, uh, really... Um, appreciating this one great precious life well thank you so much for your time i've really enjoyed our conversation thank you thank you so much that was my conversation with the president and ceo of pbs i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did recording it remember out of office is on apple Podcasts, spotify bloomberg.com and the bloomberg terminal you can check out other episodes there We're also active on social media and I would love to hear from you. You can reach me via Twitter. My handle is at thisismalika. This episode was produced by Laura Carlson. I'm Malika Kapoor. Wherever you are in the world, I hope you're well and thank you for listening. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple like as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.